Section 2 of the South American Republics, Volume 1, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Nater. Introductory, The Discoveries and Conquest, Part 2. Discovery of the Plate. The Portuguese discovery of the east coast of South America in 1500 was a disagreeable surprise to the Spanish government. The Treaty of Tordesillas had been framed with the purpose of giving America to Spain, while Africa and the shores of the Indian Ocean were left to Portugal. Nevertheless, the Portuguese vigorously asserted their right to the prize they had picked up by accident, and insisted on the letter of the treaty. They promptly explored the coast as far south as Santa Catarina, 600 miles north of the plate, but they had asserted no ownership farther south at the date when the Spanish expeditions began to be sent to the South Atlantic. In 1516, a celebrated sea captain from the north of Spain, Juan Diaz de Solis, was sent out by the Castilian government to explore the southern part of the continent. He simply reconnoitred the Brazilian coast, where the Portuguese had not yet established any settlements, and pressing on to the south, finally reached the plate. His first impression on rounding Cape St. Maria, where the Uruguayan shore turns to the northwest, was that he had reached the southern point of the continent and discovered the sea route into the Pacific. But the freshness of the water in the great estuary undeceived him. Following along the northern bank, he landed with a small party and was attacked and slain by a tribe of fierce and intractable Indians. When the news reached Lisbon, the Portuguese government protested against this invasion of territory, which it claimed lay east of the Tordesillas line. Portugal, however, did not follow up her protest or try to take possession for herself. At this very time, a celebrated Portuguese navigator, Fernando Magellan, disgusted by the neglect of his own country, was urging the Spanish government to give him the means of carrying out his great project for the circumnavigation of the globe. He was confident he could reach the East Indies by rounding the southern point of South America, or by finding a passage through the continent in higher latitudes than had yet been reached. The year 1519, when Magellan sailed from San Lucar on the first voyage round the world, was big with fate for Spain. Cortes was adding a new empire by the conquest of Mexico, thus giving Spain control of the world's supply of precious metals. The popular assemblies of Castile and Aragon, of Catalonia, Valencia, and Galicia, were preparing for a hopeless struggle against the might of a monarch who ruled two-thirds of Europe. At the very moment that Charles V was crushing peninsular freedom by brutal military force, the genius of Magellan and Cortes gave him the whole of America. Spain had heretofore been a federation of self-governing communes and provinces, but their independence was now destroyed. Military despotism proved strong enough to crush liberty, although it was unable to stamp out the feeling of local segregation. The very soldiers that conquered America took over an intensive feeling that the central government was dangerous and inimical to the people a sentiment which had always survived in some form among their descendants. Magellan stopped at the plate in the beginning of 1520, and explored the estuary to make sure that it did not afford the passage he was seeking. 
In October he reached the mouth of the strait that bears his name, and, wonderfully favoured by wind and weather, threaded his way to the Pacific in five weeks. Subsequent wayfarers were not so fortunate, and the strait never became a practicable commercial route until after the introduction of steam navigation. In the succeeding hundred years, not half a dozen ships reached the Pacific round South America. Practically, the Pacific was accessible only over the Isthmus or by the immensely long journey round the Cape of Good Hope. Nevertheless, the importance of this epoch-making voyage has not been overestimated. The Pacific became, in a sense, a Spanish lake, in which she could maintain at will a naval preponderance. She occupied the Philippines and secured control at leisure of the Pacific coast of America. However, the scientific results were more important. Thereafter, the thorough exploration of all the shores of the South Sea was only a question of time. Magellan's voyage made geography an exact science. He sketched the map of the world with broad and sure strokes, and left nothing for subsequent explorers except the filling in of details. The occupation of the Philippines and Moluccas gave rise to new disputes between Spain and Portugal as to their rights under the Treaty of Tordesillas. The imperfect instruments of those days left the line doubtful on the eastern South American coast as well as on the other side of the world. In 1526, Sebastian Cabot was sent by the Spanish government to determine astronomically the location of the line in America, and then to follow Magellan's track to Western Asia. At the mouth of the plate, he heard rumors among the Indians of silver mines on the river's banks and of the existence of a great and wealthy empire at its headwaters. This was Peru, not yet reached by the Castilians on their way south from the Isthmus, but the coast Indians showed Cabot silver ornaments which had been passed from hand to hand from the highlands of Peru and Bolivia down the river to the Atlantic. Cabot and his band of adventurers determined to neglect their surveying, trusting that the discovery of silver mines would excuse their disobedience. They spent three years in vain journeying and prospecting, exploring the Uruguay to the head of navigation, and following up the Paraná as far as the Apipe Rapids. Signs of neither silver nor gold nor of civilized inhabitants were found on either river. Their upper courses came down from the east, the direction opposite to that in which El Dorado was reported. The gently flowing Paraguay, coming down the plains in the center of the continent, seemed to offer a better hope of success. But Cabot's forces and provisions were inadequate to penetrating further north than the present site of Asuncion. Returning to a fort he had left on the lower Paraná, he found that it had been taken by Indians and its garrison massacred. Discouraged by such a succession of difficulties and misfortunes, he returned to Spain. The news of Cabot's expedition and its failure stimulated the Portuguese to undertake the colonization of the east coast of South America. Afonso de Souza started from Lisbon with an expedition, intending to take possession of the plate. Lack of provisions, fear of the Indians, the presence of a Portuguese castaway, one of those insignificant chances that sometimes change the course of empires as a twig diverts the current of a river, stopped Afonso before he reached his destination. 
Instead of establishing a colony on the estuary, he founded San Vicente, just south of the Tropic of Capricorn. This became the southern outpost of the Portuguese possessions, and the temperate zone of South America was left open for the Spaniards to occupy when they chose. Two years after Cabot's failure, Pizarro overran Peru. All Europe ran with the exploit. The Spanish king was besieged by nobles who literally begged the privilege of risking their lives and fortunes in America. These adelantados contracted to conquer, at their own charges, the particular districts granted them, certain profits being reserved to the crown, and Charles V freely granted such patents. Among the grandees was a Basque nobleman, Pedro de Mendoza, to whom was given the territory beginning at the Portuguese possessions south two hundred leagues along the Atlantic coast towards the Strait of Magellan. He raised more than two thousand men and reached the plate in 1535, where he immediately founded a city on the south bank which he named Buenos Aires. He intended to make it a base for an advance up the Paraná to find and conquer another Peru. His attempt was foredoomed to failure. The Indians surrounding Buenos Aires were implacable in their hatred of the invaders. They lived in scattered little tribes, and neither would nor could furnish food enough to maintain the Spaniards. The provisions brought from Spain were inadequate, sorties were useless, the Indians fled from large parties and ambushed small ones. The preparations for the advance up the river were delayed for months. Hundreds died of hunger and disease. Within a year the place had to be abandoned, and in a desperate condition the expedition fled up the river to Cabot's solid fort. Here the Adelantado stopped, sick and discouraged, while a few hundreds of more daring and persevering pressed on to the north, determined to reach El Dorado. Arrived at the junction of the Paraguay and Paraná, they chose the former river, and pushed on up it as far as the twentieth degree to a place they called Candelaria. There they found vast lakes and swamps spreading to the west. It was necessary to protect their retreat before plunging into the difficult country that extends across to Bolivia. Accordingly, they divided, and one party remained on the dry ground near the river, while two hundred desperate adventurers pressed on through the wilderness, hoping to reach the Bolivian plateau. The party that stopped behind as a reserve was commanded by Domingo Irala, the real founder of the Spanish settlements in the Parana Valley. The main expedition never returned. Years afterward, friendly Indians brought back the tale that it had reached the slopes of the Bolivian mountains, obtained much gold and silver, and started back triumphantly, but had perished to the last men in an Indian ambush not far from the Paraguay and safety. Irala waited the appointed time and then floated down the river. He and his companions were well nigh in despair. So far as they knew, they were the only survivors of the three thousand people who had accompanied Mendoza. To the north the country was inhospitable and impenetrable, and from their experiences of the year before they knew that at the mouth of the river no provisions or succor were to be had. On their way up the river, they had passed, about the twenty-fifth degree, a beautiful and fertile rolling country, covered with magnificent forests, with park-like openings, and inhabited by a large and friendly Indian population. 
Opposite the mouth of the Pilcomayo, where there was a large Indian village, they stopped on their downward journey, determined to settle down and take some repose from their interminable and fruitless wanderings in search of the will-o'-the-wisp El Dorado. There, in 1536, they founded the city of Asuncion, the first Spanish settlement on the Atlantic slope of South America. The Foundation of Buenos Aires The failure of Mendoza, first adelantado, to establish a colony on the plate, did not discourage others from soliciting the grant of his territory. In 1540, Cabeza de Vaca, a conquistador celebrated for his feats in Florida, was appointed adelantado and set out gallantly to find the second Peru, which everyone believed to exist at the headwaters of the Paraguay. Intent on reaching the interior as soon as possible, he made no attempt to establish a town and port at the mouth of the river plate, but landed at Santa Catarina, on what is now the Brazilian coast, in the latitude of Paraguay, and set off across country with four hundred men and twenty horses. The distance was a thousand miles. The route led up a heavily wooded mountain range on the coast, and thence across a broken but open plateau, where great rivers point out the natural routes to the Paraná. The soil was fertile, and the Indians along the road were able to furnish considerable food supplies. Cabeza de Vaca made the journey without appreciable loss, and arrived in Asuncion eager to take command and dash across to the Andes. But the sturdy Basques had selected their able countryman, Domingo Irala, as chief of the colony, and gave the new adelantado a cold welcome. Irala insisted that a reconnoitering expedition be sent before risking the body of the Spaniards. Its command was given him, and he penetrated almost to the headwaters of the Paraguay. Next year Cabeza de Vaca followed, but as soon as he left the Paraguay he got into difficulties. He could not penetrate the swamps, nor make headway against the savage Indians who lived between the river and the eastern slopes of the Cordillera. He returned defeated and discouraged, and the people of Asuncion bundled him back to Spain. Though Irala subsequently did succeed in reaching Peru, by the route up the Paraguay, no practical results followed. Paraguay remained isolated from the Spanish Empire on the Pacific coast until a roundabout communication was established down the river, and thence went across the dry and level plains that stretch from the mouth of the river plate to the Cordillera. The early days of the Asuncion settlement were stormy. The rough adventurers fell to fighting among themselves, and their cruelties often drove the patient and submissive Indians into rebellion. Their greed for bigger plantations and more slaves pushed them on to conquering the aborigines in an expanding circle. By 1553 they had founded a settlement on the upper Paraná and were dominant from river to river in the southern half of the present territory of Paraguay. Until his death in 1557, Irala was the dominating personality in the colony. According to his lights, he was just in his dealings with the Indians, when he died, the settlement was firmly on its feet, and even the Indians revered him as their benefactor. The mass of the population was Indian, and Guarani has always remained the prevalent language in Paraguay. Absolutely isolated from other European colonies, 
and almost without communication with the mother country, the settlement was, however, an unpromising affair. The few hundreds of Spaniards might have sustained their social and military superiority over the hordes of Indians by whom they were surrounded, but without material and intellectual communication with Spain they could achieve no commercial success. An outlet to the sea was necessary. The original settlers had been adventurers, willing to follow Mendoza through swamp and forest up to the walls of El Dorado, and their children were not less enterprising. The horses brought over by the Adelantados had multiplied amazingly, and were spreading wild over the Pampa to the south. Cattle, sheep, and goats bred by millions. Before long, the attractions of a pastoral life began to appeal to the Spaniards and Creoles of Asuncion. The braver and more energetic preferred the free open existence of the Pampa to idleness in the sleepy villages of Paraguay. The Argentine nation proper began its existence when the Creole mounted his horse and took to cattle breeding on the plains. The possession of horses, as much as of firearms, gave the gaucho his military predominance over the fiercest aborigines, and the horse was also the cornerstone of his industrial system. The cattle of the open pampa gave him an unlimited supply of the best food, and his horses enabled him to procure it with a minimum of effort. Irala's successors repeatedly tried to establish a colony near the mouth of the plate, but they were not successful until the creoles on horseback had pushed their way south along the pampa and driven back or subdued the wandering Indians. In 1560, the Guaranis of Paraguay were definitely crushed in the horribly bloody Battle of Acari, but it was not until 1573 that the Spaniards from Asuncion succeeded in founding a city south of the confluence of the Paraná and Paraguay. Santa Fe was the first Spanish settlement on the plate in territory now a part of the Argentine Republic. The man who led the Creoles to the Pampa was Juan de Garay, a Basque who had been one of the soldiers in the army that conquered Peru. His energy and vigor, and the bravery of the Creole cavalry who followed his expeditions down the river and over the Pampas, at length opened up communications from Paraguay to Europe and gave Spain a seaport on the South Atlantic. Curiously enough, in the very year that Garay founded Santa Fe, the Spaniards from Peru founded Cordoba, the most eastward of the Andean settlements. Their hard riders had pushed on from Cordoba, reconnoitering as far as the Paraná, and there ran across Garay's men. The two currents of Argentine settlements met almost at the beginning, though two centuries were to elapse before they completely coalesced. Eight years later, Garay succeeded in founding Buenos Aires after Zarate, the first adelantado, had failed as badly as any of his predecessors. Garay, by sheer force of energy and fitness, became the real ruler of the settlements. Active, far-sighted, and able, he perceived that a purely military establishment at the mouth of the river was foredoomed to failure. To be permanent, the port and town must be self-sustaining, and therefore must be surrounded by farms and ranches, and be accessible by land from the upper settlements. In the spring of 1580, the acting governor sent overland from Santa Fe 200 families of Guarani Indians, accompanied by a thousand horses, 
200 cows and 50 sheep, besides mares, carts, oxen, and other necessaries. The soldiers of the convoy were mostly Creoles born in Paraguay. Boats carried down from Santa Fe arms, munitions, seed grain, tools, and whatever in those rude days was essential to a settlement. He himself went by land with forty soldiers, following the highlands that skirts the west bank of the Paraná from Santa Fe to Buenos Aires. The plate estuary affords no proper harbours. The immense volume of water spreading over vast shallow beds chokes it with sandbars, and the shores are so shelving that even small boats cannot approach the land. The north side is bolder, and at Montevideo and at the mouth of the Uruguay affords bays partly sheltered from the storms which sweep up over the level pampas and make anchorage in the river so unsafe. But the north bank was cut off from land communication with the existing Spanish towns by the mighty Uruguay and Paraná, and Garay desired that his new city should be always accessible from his older settlements on the right bank of the Paraná. His choice of the particular spot, where the largest city of the southern hemisphere has since grown up, seems to have been determined by a few trifling circumstances. He kept as near the head of the estuary as possible, in order to shorten the land route from Santa Fe, and picked upon a slight rise of ground between two draws, which made the site defensible. The fact that a nearby creek, the Riachuelo, afforded a shelter for little boats may also have been given weight in reaching a decision. Though his settlers did not number five hundred, Garay laid out his city like a townside boomer. The surrounding country was divided into ranches, and the neighboring Indians were distributed among the citizens of the new town. A cabildo, or city council, was named, with the full paraphernalia of a Spanish municipal government. The new town started off in the full enjoyment of all the guarantees known to immemorial Spanish constitutional law. Troubles broke out almost immediately between the Creole settlers and the Spaniards, who had been sent over by the Adelantaro to fill offices and get the best things in distributions of land and slaves. Garay had hardly left the town to look after the rest of the province, than the Creoles, indignant over unfair treatment, forcibly demanded an open cabildo. This was an extraordinary popular assembly, which, according to old Spanish custom, might be called at critical times, and was something like a town meeting. In theory, the property owners and educated citizens were called together merely to give advice, but in practice it was a tumultuous assemblage to overawe the office holders. The Argentine Creoles were doing nothing more than asserting their constitutional rights as vassals of the King of Castile they compelled the Spanish office-holders to compromise. Meanwhile, Garay was clinching his claim to immortality as the founder of the Spanish power on the plate. He explored the Pampas to the south and west of the new city, and reduced many of the tribes to slavery or vassalage. He found the plains already overrun by hundreds of thousands of horses, the descendants of the few abandoned there forty-five years before, when the remnants of Mendoza's ill-starred expedition fled up the river. On his way back to Santa Fe, this great Indian fighter was ambushed by Indians and stabbed while he slept. 
His death was followed by outbreaks among the Creoles, who resented the efforts of the Adelantados' new representatives to establish a monopoly in horse hair. Scarcely had they found a way to make a little money by hunting wild horses for their hair, than the officials tried to absorb all the profit. The struggle between the repressive commercial policy of Spain and the interests of the plate colonists began with the foundation of the colony of Buenos Aires, and went on for more than two hundred years. In 1588 the Creoles obtained a foothold in the extreme north of the Mesopotamian region by founding the city of Corrientes near the junction of the Paraná and Paraguay. All the new commonwealths south of Asuncion obtained a solid economic foundation in the herds of cattle and horses which covered the plains. In the regions adjacent to the Andes, the Spaniards did not become so exclusively pastoral as their brethren of the Pampas near the plate. While they had more and better Indian slaves, their pasturage was not so good. Though apparently more isolated, their proximity to Upper Peru and the trade that went on with that great mining country, the goal of fortune-hunting Spaniards of those years, placed them more directly under the control of the viceregal authorities. Tucumán was a mere southern extension of the jurisdiction of the Audiencia at Charcas, and Cuyo was an integral part of Chile, but this did not prevent the early development of a strong sentiment in favor of local self-government and of hatred of the imported Spanish satraps. By the year 1617, the settlements on the lower Paraná had become of considerable importance. Buenos Aires was a town of 3,000 people. The right bank of the river, as far as Santa Fe, was a grazing ground for the herds of the Creoles. Towns and ranches were flourishing in Corrientes. In that year, the Spanish crown abolished the office of Adelantado and erected the lower settlements into a province separate from Paraguay. The new province included the territory that is now Uruguay, as well as the four actual Argentine provinces of Buenos Aires, Santa Fe, Entre Rios, and Corrientes. Entre Rios and Uruguay were, however, as yet entirely unsettled. While the Creoles were thus firmly establishing themselves along the lower Paraná and in the Andean provinces, the Jesuits were converting the Indians in the east of Paraguay, and early in the seventeenth century these indefatigable missionaries had penetrated to the upper Paraná, crossed it, and were gathering the Indians by thousands into peaceful villages. End of section 2